We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 18 through 32. Let's read the word. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one, one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor and so after receiving the morsel he went out immediately and it was night when therefore he had gone out Jesus said now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him if God is glorified in him God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately let's pray Dear Heavenly Father, we have uh, many things on our hearts and minds today, as was mentioned in our worship service, Lord, and uh, somebody reminded me just now, uh, our government has asked us to pray for the victims of Harvey today, and surely of all people, we as followers of Jesus will pray for them. We lift them up and pray for your care for them. Father, we pray for the preaching of the word today, and uh, we pray that you would work in people's lives to, so that we would see and come to know more truly as he is this Jesus, who is our Savior, who is the sovereign God of the universe, apart from whom nothing was made that was made. Give Tom all the things you want him to share with us, Father. Give us hearts to hear and understand and receive and follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. One of the most uh, painful things that any human being and experience is a personal betrayal. There are some in this room who, at a point in the past, entrusted their love and their lives to another person in marriage, only to find that that person betrayed them and produced a hurt in them that was greater than any they could ever have imagined. Some of you have been be betrayed by a co-worker who used you as a stepping stone on his way up the corporate ladder at your expense. Some, in fact, some in this room, have handed a good chunk of their net worth over to another person based on the promise that that person was going to diligently invest that money 
in order to give profit to the one who, who had handed it to him, only to find that, that his intention was never to produce benefit to the, to the person that had handed him the money. It was just to steal it. If you've fallen victim at some point in your life to a personal betrayal, consider this question. What would you have done differently if you had known long in advance that that person was going to betray you at that time in that way? In fact, what if you had known that before you had ever even met the person? Isn't it safe to say that you would never have married that person? That you would never have have taken a position in the same department as that person in a work environment, that you certainly would never have handed your money over to that person. You would have never put yourself in the position to be so betrayed. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot is the most monumental impactful betrayal in the history of mankind. But it was planned by the very one against whom it was directed. Jesus knew from before the creation of all things that this betrayal was going to happen on this very evening that's recorded in John chapter 13. But He did absolutely nothing to protect Himself against it. Quite the contrary, he went to great lengths to ensure that it happened. Jesus didn't merely know that Judas was going to betray him that night. Jesus facilitated that betrayal. And even though Jesus knew from time, from eternity past, what Judas was going to do and when he was going to do it, he very deliberately left his 11 true disciples at a loss to understand what was going on. He left them perplexed and confused and quite worried after telling them that one of them was going to betray him, that one in that room was going to betray him. Both of those realities pervade this passage. First, that Jesus and His Father were sovereignly controlling every event that would unfold that day and the next, and three days after the next. Secondly, that Jesus deliberately left His disciples at a loss to understand what He was telling them about the things that would shortly take place. We're going to consider two counterintuitive lessons that I believe Jesus was teaching His disciples in this passage and that He's teaching us. Both of these lessons depend entirely on the absolute sovereignty and perfect knowledge of the King of Kings. The first lesson is, when God withholds important information from us, (laughs) that's always a good thing. When God withholds important information from us, that's always a good thing. Second lesson, God uses even the very worst intentions of men to accomplish His perfect will. God uses even the very worst intentions of men to accomplish His perfect will. 
First lesson, when God withholds important information from us, (laughs) that's always a good thing, not a bad thing. Back in verse 7, when Peter got all upset about Jesus demeaning himself to wash Peter's feet, Jesus said to Peter, What I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. See, Jesus told Peter straight up that he wasn't supposed to get it just yet. But he would, eventually. After the foot washing, Jesus revealed a very practical lesson for the disciples based on what he had just done. That lesson was that he was calling them to a life of humble and self-denying service toward one another in keeping with the example that he had just shown them. Everything Jesus did during this last evening with his disciples in that upstairs room in Jerusalem came with a critically important lesson for the men through whom he would spread his kingdom all over the earth after he departed this earth. And that same thing is true in our passage this morning. Everything that Jesus does here carries a lesson for his disciples and for us. As our passage begins in the first half of verse 18, Jesus tells the twelve disciples that the lesson of the foot washing does not in fact apply to everyone in the room. Because there is one among them who is actually not one of them. Jesus declares that he knows those whom he has chosen. There's one in that room that he had not chosen. One of the twelve. In the second half of verse 18, he quotes a prophecy of King David from Psalm 41. A prophecy that foretold the betrayal that was just about to unfold that same evening. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Then in verse 19... He tells his disciples something exceedingly important. He explains why he's telling them in advance about a terrible betrayal that hasn't happened just yet. He says, I am telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. There's a reason I didn't put the word he at the end of that. If you look in your own... Bibles, most of them, you'll see that the word he, I am he, that the word he is in italics. That's because it's not in the original. That happens a lot in the Gospel of John. It's very possible grammatically that it's supposed to be there, supposed to be understood. But I don't think it belongs there, and I'll tell you why a little later. Keep verse 19 in mind. It's really important for the rest of your life. Jesus says, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. A couple of verses later, verse 21, Jesus adds a startling bit of detail to the Old Testament prophecy that he just shared with his disciples. He declares to those 12 men that the betrayer of whom David spoke prophetically in Psalm 41 was one of them. Now, imagine for a moment that you're in a room with Jesus and 11 other guys 
And you've all been steadfastly following Jesus for the last three years. And suddenly Jesus tells your little group that a prophecy of unthinkable betrayal against your master, a prophecy that God delivered to Israel through King David a thousand years earlier, was talking about one of you. Having dropped that unpinned grenade in the room, Jesus then proceeds in the rest of the passage to very intentionally, very strategically, leave His true disciples completely at a loss to know the answer to the question that now consumed their thoughts and emotions. Who is this betrayer among us? Verse 22 says the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Even after Jesus identifies Judas as the betrayer to Judas by dipping a bit of food in a bowl and handing it to Judas as he said he would do to identify the betrayer, the disciples are still clueless. For reasons of his own, Jesus did not allow the other disciples to catch that little unveiling. It was just between Jesus and the betrayer. The disciples still had no idea that Judas was the one who was about to hand their master into the, into the hands of those who would arrange his execution. And by the way, I think Judas was the one they probably least suspected. Because if Jesus knew who the betrayer was and had always known, why would he let that man handle the money? Even that very day. As if Jesus cared about money. They understood very well that Jesus knew who the betrayer was, but even when Jesus said his final words to Judas, what you do, do quickly, the other disciples still didn't have a clue. Verse 28 says, Now no one of those reclining at table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. At that particular point, if you were one of the other 11 disciples, the true disciples of Jesus, who had no intention of betraying Jesus, would you consider it to be mission critical for your little group to know which one among you was the betrayer? I would think that that bit of information would be the very most important thing that you would want to know that day of all the things that can be known. Based on what you already know at this point about Peter's tendency to take matters into his own hands, what do you think would have happened if Jesus had told Peter and the other disciples that Judas, who was still in the room with them, was going to betray him into the hands of the Jewish authorities who were intent on executing him? <laughs> Peter would have had Judas bound and gagged and strapped to the nearest immovable object in a New York minute. Cliff, you know how fast a New York minute is, right? How would that have worked out for you and me and every other sinner who has ever lived? 
Have you ever thought about the fact that when Jesus tells Peter just a few verses after all this that he, Peter, is going to deny Jesus that very night, Peter still doesn't know that Judas is the prophesied betrayer. Wow. I'm still stewing on that. I believe that what Jesus was doing with his disciples here serves a very important purpose, that it is a, a critical lesson for all of his disciples in every age that warrants serious consideration on our part. That lesson is that when God withholds important information from us, that's always a good thing, not a bad thing. We don't care for that very much, do we, when God withholds important information from us? I'm convinced that it's very, very good for us to ponder God's precious and magnificent promises about things yet to come, whether they're going to happen today or in a couple of thousand years. It's good for us to examine His promises carefully in every detail. It's good for us to talk with each other about them. It's good for us to read good books written by godly men who have carefully examined those promises. It's good even for us to speculate about how the fulfillment of those promises might play out. All such endeavors help to keep us focused on the hope which is the anchor of our souls. Keeps us looking forward and upward instead of looking around at things in which there is no hope. But I have a serious cringe reaction when I read or hear Christian authors and preachers declare that their particular detailed understanding of biblical prophecy is mission critical for the church. That if you don't believe what they believe about how various specific prophecies in the Bible are going to play out, or perhaps have already played out, you're messing with the ability of the church to keep its, to, to fulfill its mission in the world. Some preachers declare that Christians if they're allowed to think that a catching up of the saints is going to whisk them away from the earth to the bosom of Christ before the outpouring of God's wrath against sinners, that expectation will make the church lazy and complacent and ineffective. They say it's mission critical that Christians not not be allowed to believe something like that. Some other preachers whose theology of end times is reflected in the popular Left Behind series, declared that if we don't preach a clear timeline of things to come as they understand it, we will be robbing those who are left behind of the exact information that they need to bring them to repentance and faith. They say, in effect, it's mission critical that we proclaim what they believe about the end times. Now, those are just grossly inadequate and badly oversimplified representations of just a couple of many, many different understandings of end times prophecy that godly men have arrived at after long and faithful study of the Word of God. That in itself should tell us something. Far too many preachers and authors are very quick to accuse those who've come to different conclusions than their own 
about the meaning of prophecies, of being careless with the word and dangerous influences on the church. Like fiery arrows, they sling phrases around like discredited theology, sloppy exegesis, dangerous assumptions, and so on and so on. Preachers and authors from various positions declare with equal forcefulness that if the church doesn't get all the details about this right, they're going to fail. We're going to fail in our mission between now and the time these things are fulfilled. Never mind that countless sinners have come to faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel proclamations of Christians who hold to dramatically different understandings of end times prophecy. Here's what I believe this passage tells us is mission critical for the church of Jesus Christ when it comes to the not yet understood. It's mission critical that when God withholds a a really clear understanding of exactly what he's going to do at some point in the future, we trust his knowledge and not ours. And we get on with with our assignment. It's no coincidence that John starts this chapter with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And then right near the end of it, he gives a new commandment to his disciples. That you love one another even as I have loved you. That you love also, that you also love one another. And then he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By the love that you have for one another. Not, not by how perfectly you've got all the end time stuff figured out. Brothers and sisters, there's a really good reason that we don't know what we don't know. Think for just a moment about what the 11 true disciples who were in this upper room actually understood about what was going to happen even the next day. Did it mess up God's agenda for his disciples that they didn't even understand that Jesus had to die until he died? Did it mess up God's agenda for the disciples that they didn't even understand that Jesus had to be raised from the dead until they saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes? Even though the Old Testament prophets had clearly prophesied both of those world-changing events hundreds of years before? Did the fact that Jesus' own disciples were clueless about the necessity of His death and resurrection until both those events had occurred mess up what God wanted to accomplish through His disciples? Of course not. Because if it had, that would make their understanding more important than His understanding. And that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. You know what produces most of the divisions in the church? Christians fearing Christians instead of fearing God. Now think for just a moment about what the disciples did get right because this drives us right back to what Jesus says here. What did they get right based on the Old Testament prophecies about Christ? Well, one thing that they got right very early on during Jesus' earthly ministry was the very thing they most needed to get right. 
If you go back to John chapter 1, you'll see what I'm talking about. What was that one thing that they started getting right almost immediately? The identity of Jesus. In the very first chapter of John's Gospel, Andrew says to Simon, whose name Jesus would change to Peter, we have found the Messiah. Four verses later, Philip says to Nathanael, we have found Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And four verses after that, Nathanael the skeptic says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the son of God. You are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Even when they were just beginning to see Jesus fulfill the words of the prophets, even when a thousand things were still unclear to them, the one thing they understood was that Jesus was the one the prophets had been talking about for 1,500 years. Was that mission critical? Yeah. The most important thing God intends for His people to know as we see prophecies and promises promises about Jesus Christ being fulfilled is the very thing that John the Apostle tells us is the reason that he wrote this gospel. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Did God ever say to His people, if you don't clearly understand all the details of my prophecies before they're fulfilled, you'll be useless to me. I can't find any place in the Bible that says that, but here's, here's what I can find. What God does say to His people over and over and over again is when you see these things come to pass, then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. You know how many times God says that in the Old Testament? You know how many times God says to Israel or to other nations, when you see me fulfill the things that I have said I will do, then you will know that I am Yahweh. I counted over 80 times. Eight zero times in the Old Testament that God says that. You think that's important? Isn't that exactly what Jesus says to His disciples right here? Look at verse 19 again. Right after quoting David's thousand-year-old prophecy that the one who shared bread with Messiah would betray him, Jesus says, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. You know why I don't put the word he at the end of that? Because I'm convinced that Jesus is saying exactly, exactly, what Yahweh said more than 80 times in the Old Testament. When you see these things happen, then you will know that I am. The most mission critical thing that fulfilled prophecy does in us is that it tells us then and then and it reminds us and it reminds us and it reminds us over and over who it is with whom we have. 
the very consistent pattern that we see played out in God's word, (laughs) brace yourself, is that God's people pretty much never fully or rightly understand what God says he's going to do until he's done it. Not even the really important stuff, you know, like the exiles, the return to the land, the death and resurrection of Jesus. What God has made crystal clear, beloved, we need to clearly understand. And we need to believe it and we need to act on it right now. What He has not made so clear, we don't need to worry about. And we had certainly better not be dividing His church over it. In 1 Thessalonians 4, after talking about the catching up of the saints, to be with Christ forever, the dead first and then the living. Paul says, therefore comfort one another with these words. You'll notice he doesn't say beat each other up until you all come to to the same exact understanding of the specific meaning of these words. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, after telling us that we will all receive immortal, imperishable bodies and that death has no sting. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Do you have to know with rock-solid certainty whether the temple spoken of in the Old Testament prophecies of the end times is literal or allegorical to be able to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labors are not in vain in the Lord? I don't think so. We need to keep our eyes on the prize, beloved. We need to have the humility to let some things, in fact, many things, be unclear until God chooses to make them clear. When it actually does become mission critical for God's people to understand a particular prophecy, God will see to it that we who have hidden His Word in our hearts figure out that He has fulfilled it. He promises that over and over. So let's rejoice in all that God has clearly revealed about his big picture agenda. Bible-believing Christians are amazingly unified in our understanding of the things that God has made clear. They're big picture kind of things. Like the fact that he's going to return again to earth to judge mankind and all of creation. That He's going to do away with sin and the curse of sin forever. That He's going to make all things new. That He's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That every believer will be raised in the likeness of Christ's own resurrection will receive a redeemed imperishable body as the eternal vessel of His redeemed imperishable soul. That God will be our God and we will be His people dwelling with Him in perfect love, perfect unity, perfect communion with Him and with one another forever. That's a whole lot of powerfully transforming worldview defining common ground, brothers and sisters. Let's rejoice in the common ground 
instead of biting and devouring one another over things that simply aren't yet clear. Above all, as we watch God keep his promises every day of our lives, let's rejoice in who it is with whom we have to do. The one we trust and follow is the promised Lord of glory, the Son of God, the King of kings, the great I Am. The one who believes in Him will never be disappointed. And that brings us to the second lesson of this important passage. I'll be brief. God uses even the very worst intentions of men to accomplish His perfect will. Verse 20 hints at what Jesus is going to say to His disciples later that same evening in chapter 15, about how the world will treat them. As Jesus had been sent into the world by His Father, so He was now sending them into the world. Some people, not many, would receive His disciples, just as some people, not many, had received Him. Most would reject His disciples just as they had rejected Him. His point in verse 20 is that however a person responds to those whom Jesus sends into the world as his ambassadors, that's how they respond to him. And how they respond to him is how they respond to his Father. Just like he said in John 5, 24, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now he's saying, whoever does not honor you, whom I send, does not honor the Father who sent me. Every person you proclaim and display the gospel of Jesus Christ to during your time on this earth will be held accountable to the Father of lights for their response to you. That's not your problem, it's theirs. But it's something that God wants you to know. Jesus knew all along that there was one in that upper room who had not received him, one who was a pretender, a betrayer, Verse 21 tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit as he told the disciples that it was one of them who was going to betray him. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus was looking forward to the hour of his return back to the glory that had always belonged to him at his Father's side. But now as he anticipated Judas' betrayal that same night, his thoughts went again to the hour that had to come before his return. The hour of his suffering and humiliation and rejection at the hands of both men and God. As he prepared to send Judas on his way to carry out his necessary betrayal, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Three times... In verses 11 through 13, we're told that Jesus was troubled in spirit. One of several myths that causes many people to walk away from Christianity before they've actually met Christ is what I call the myth of Christian serenity. If you look up synonyms for the word serenity, you'll find words like tranquility, calmness, quietness, stillness. Is that the life that God promises to his people? Buddhism claims to offer serenity. Hinduism claims to offer serenity. 
Christianity doesn't. If the author and perfecter of our faith could become troubled in spirit, you can bet that you will experience that same deep concern if you're actually following him. That's not a threat. That's not a burden. As my brother Eric pointed out to us this morning during the worship, it's a promise. It's part of our participation in the suffering of our Savior and Master that has to come before our participation in His glory. It's guaranteed to followers of Jesus. Deep concern for the things that actually matter to God comes from having Christ's priorities instead of men's. In 2 Corinthians 11, after presenting a dizzying list of the persecutions and sufferings that Paul had experienced for the sake of Christ, he says this, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Daily pressure, intense concern. Does that sound to you like Christian serenity? The follower of Christ is promised a peace that surpasses all comprehension. That peace is infinitely more powerful, more durable, more valuable, and more useful than a detached serenity that comes from divorcing ourselves, our thoughts, and our feelings from the things that actually matter. The true peace of God exists not in the absence of pain or sorrow, but in the midst of pain and sorrow. His peace destroys the power of suffering to define or control or rob us, to rob us of our joy. It turns overwhelmed people into overcomers and it turns victims into conquerors. The confidence that God gives to every child of His is the same confidence that belonged to Jesus. That confidence comes beautifully into focus right at the end of this passage. Verse 30 tells us that right after Jesus handed Judas that bit of food, to let him know that he knew what he was about to do. Judas went out immediately, and it was night. But the night could not overcome the light. At the beginning of this chapter, in verse 2, John told us that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon to betray Jesus. In verse 27, John tells us that as soon as Jesus handed Judas that bit of food, Satan entered into Judas. That's when Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So who was calling the shots here? Was it Satan? Was it Judas? The last two verses of the passage remove all doubt. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus turns the attention of his 11 true disciples to his Father's astounding purpose, even for the betrayal that Judas was about to carry out that very moment. 
The most grievous betrayal ever committed by any human being. Here's our Lord's take on what that betrayal would accomplish. Verse 31, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Look at the word immediately in verse 30 and verse 32. There's a reason it's in both of those verses. Judas went out immediately to betray Jesus into the hands of those powerful men who would put him to death. But God had his own agenda for that same betrayal, and he was going to accomplish that agenda immediately. A plan that would glorify God, that would put God himself on display in a manner that his creation had never previously beheld. See, it would not be, it would not be in spite of the betrayal and humiliation and suffering and death of Jesus that God would be glorified. It would be through and by means of the betrayal and humiliation and suffering and death of Jesus that our triune God was about to be glorified in all of His creation beyond anything that His creation had ever seen. Never before and never since has the world beheld the incomparable truth about God, the incomparable character of God in such an all-encompassing and perfectly harmonious display. The very next day, God's own Son, suspended on a cross between heaven and earth, would show men and angels and every other created thing the perfection of His love His compassion, His kindness, His grace, His mercy, His justness, His purity, His righteousness, His absolute and perfect power and sovereignty. Beloved, as you and I follow Christ, all of our misplaced fears become replaced with the wonderful fear of God alone. Even the very worst betrayals of men cannot rob us of the indescribable gift of life that consists of relationship with Almighty God. The concerns that come from clinging to the things of this world become replaced with the worthy concerns that proceed from clinging only to Jesus. We get to enter into his concerns. Concerns for the eternal souls of men and women and children. Concerns for the advancement of his glory and his kingdom. You and I need to know, you and I need to know that it isn't what people do that makes it well with our souls. It's what God promises and what God does. And beloved, those two are always, always one and the same. Dear Father, make us so confident in your knowledge of all things 
and in Your sovereign control of all things, that the many things we don't yet understand drive us to love You all the more and to follow You all the better. Replace our fear of people and things that lack the power to do either good or evil with a deep and abiding concern for the things that really matter to the One who has always known the end from the beginning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.